Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Tick, Tick, Boom, which Netflix released just last month. It's a musical both about and from the creative work of Jonathan Larson, best known as the creator of Rent, the acclaimed Broadway musical, and at a high level, the film explores the challenges of being an artist. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 87%, and the critics' consensus reads, Tick, Tick, Boom makes musical magic out of a story focused on the creative process, an impressive feat for debuting director Lin-Manuel Miranda. Besides Lin's involvement as director, it's also worth noting that the film stars Andrew Garfield as John Larson. My guests today are the film editors. First, Andy Weissbloom. From reading your IMDb page, it jumps out at me that you've edited multiple films with both Wes Anderson and Darren Aronofsky, which at a minimum looks like a challenging context shift. Welcome to Below the Line. Thank you. And returning to the show is Myron Kirstein, who joined us last season, June I think it was, to talk about his work on In the Heights, the film adaptation of the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical, which was directed by John M. Chu. Myron, nice to see you again. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to have you both here. Listeners, this is your warning. Today's discussion will include spoilers for Tick, Tick, Boom. As an additional warning, if you're not familiar with the musical Rent, it's possible that elements of that storyline might make their way into today's discussion. Tick, Tick, Boom itself is potentially a spoiler for Rent, since so many of the elements of the latter story were autobiographical for John Larson. And with that in mind, let's start by setting some context for this story, especially how it resonates within the musical theater community. Tick, Tick, Boom was originally developed as a one-man show, written and performed by John, inspired by his failure to get his musical Superbia produced. That was before Rent. Now, the tragedy of John's life, as is explained in the film, is that he died before Rent had its first public performance. Following his death, his one-man show was adapted into a three-person show, and then we see large elements of that in the film itself. The movie, in turn, is an adaptation of the three-person show with additional elements. So, gentlemen, talk to me about how this larger context influenced your work on the movie. Jonathan Larson is a figure in musical theater. I mean, musical theater participants and aficionados could probably speak to this better than I could. But his work represented a shift in theater, musical theater, in terms of representation and subject matter and themes that Broadway theater didn't really represent or embrace prior to his arrival on the scene. It was all posthumous, but at the same time, his legacy carries on for decades and influenced the next generation of people from uh, different backgrounds with different stories, people like Lynn. And he has spoken about this being a main inspiration for becoming the presence that he's become in musical theater and learning that he could write about the things he wanted to write about that were important or familiar to him and part of his life experience that he might not have realized before. So Larson is kind of a bridge between where we are now and what came before with Stephen Sondheim um, and other musical theater figures the other thing that's unique about him is that he was trying to make his mark at a time when musical theater was struggling in a specific way. Broadway was kind of at its, its nadir in terms of <laughs> safety and tourism in the late 80s and early 90s. And also all of New York as well as the country, but I suppose you could, you could see it in a very um, 
focused way in the musical theater world how it was hit by the AIDS crisis. And a whole generation of uh, talent either died young or was lost or whatever. And it was it was dying on the vine in a moment when he was trying to make his mark in that world. So that's kind of all part of his story and part of the story of the film is what that turning point was in theater. It's all the precursor for it, the origin story, if you will, because he ultimately, as you say, never lived to see that success. But that's part of what's interesting here. Tick, Tick, Boom is a fascinating document because he was making a record of his struggles to become successful in theater and of time and place, um, which is just a great time capsule for everyone who wasn't there and who are influenced now without even realizing it. It's amazing how many people know Jonathan Larson and how many people who don't know Jonathan Larson to some degree. And uh, I was one of those people that, ne people that needed to be educated by Lynn and and he told me what that impact was of, of seeing, was it a um, off-Broadway production, Andy? Yeah. And, you know, to, to be part of something that educates an audience, not only about Jonathan Larson, but even people who haven't seen Rent, and give them um, some context of what it was like to live in New York in the early 90s, and which was is much different than it is today. And um, and to show that there isn't really a Lynn without Jonathan Larson is uh, something really special. Well, tell me about how each of you became involved with the project. Andy, I know you started first. Talk to me about when Lynn came to you and, and, and what those uh, early contacts were about. I spoke with him first in late 2019 about the project. I was approached um, as a New York-based editor, which is where they were doing the whole project. And, and we chatted for a while about the whole New York scene and our, in that time and place and our familiarity growing up then. You know, myself being a little bit older than Lynn, I had a slightly different perspective. But 1990 was kind of my time uh, to graduate high school and move on. And I, so I was very familiar with a lot of, uh, just culturally, even literally, with people who traveled in a lot of the same circles as Larson. And obviously that was all exciting for us to talk about and share together. And I think he knew that I understood what that time and place was about and what people today may or may not understand about it. Um, and I think that was a reason for us to connect and become part of the project. And then at a certain point through the um, misfortune of COVID and everything that has happened in the past few years, um, the project went through a long delay in the middle and other things on my schedule kind of creeped up for me that I had to leave for to work with Darren Aronofsky, who I'd worked with in the past, and he had something coming, and it's just a commitment I had. So I had to pass the baton to Myron, and we were very lucky that he was available and excited to do it. And that's where he takes over. It was surprising to get the call because I'd heard about the production going on for a long time and then shutting down like a lot of productions did for six months. And then to get the call that Andy had um, another film he had to start. And But it was nice to have a little continuity from In the Heights to that project and to be able to, frankly, to be able to apply some stuff so that I learned, uh, both learned and made mistakes on, on In the Heights, and then under to get under the hood of, of Andy's edits that he had already beautifully crafted with the film, and, and then uh, dive in. 
see what kind of trouble we can get into. <laughs> you know, I was very worried about breaking a film that was already working, but to some degree um, knew that um, we still had some challenges to meet down the line. So give me a sense about how the COVID break affected you guys. Yeah, well, we were um, eight days into the shoot when we had to shut down. So there wasn't a whole lot of material to work with. I spent another week kind of cleaning that up. And when we shut down, we didn't know how long it would be. The feeling was, oh, we'll be back in a few weeks. Little did we know. And it took several months before we resumed production with a lot of pre-planning, thanks to Netflix and our producers, Julie and Celia, to try and figure out how it could get done and how to adapt what our initial intentions were to the new realities of shooting in COVID time. This was pre-vaccination. So, you know, there were a lot of precautions and concerns to, to weigh against creative intentions and figure out the creative solutions to get through them. So I don't recall exactly when we started again, if it was in September, but I went off and cut other things in the meantime, um, just to keep my brain occupied. But it was a strange feeling when we realized we weren't going right back because we all felt that we were humming along and, and the film was coming together and there was something special, um, but it was, it was genuinely painful to kind of put it aside for a while. I think for Lynn as well, we talked about it. Then when the time came to come back in, there was a lot of discussion about how to do it safely, but still meet our goals. I think uh, during the shoot, you know, there were some challenges where prior to COVID, I like to visit set a lot, particularly with a director who's it's their first at bat, although Lynn is a lot more assured and accomplished than most in that situation. But it's nice to be able to be on set and grab the ear of the DP or the or or the director, whoever's there in a way that might be helpful and not disruptive about things that I know we might need. In some ways, I'm more concerned with doing that than I am with keeping up to camera because I know what I can and can't do with the footage pretty quickly and pretty easily. I mean, do we have it or we don't have it is not really a complicated question after a while once you know how to cut a movie. I, that's the one benefit I have from doing this all this time is that you can look at it and you know whether it's covered or isn't. So I'm not necessarily concerned about that. And my hope often is that people, the collaborators, I have trust that I'm going to say that something's missing or something isn't, and that's that's safe. But during the shoot, I was on Q-Take all the time. So I would often text with Alice or Lynn about things that I saw that I thought might need something additional or some adjustment. As a quick aside there, we're talking about Alice Brooks, the cinematographer for the film. Yeah. Um, I remember specifically, I was in close contact with Alice about how we were shooting Come to Your Senses because there were a lot of logistical challenges to that because it had a lot of people in the room versus the, it's an intercut sequence that happens. And we wanted the different shots from the different locations to complement each other. So we were having a lot of discussion during the day about how to do the transitions, how to match the shots, what challenges one location presented over another. You know, there was a best laid plan, but it, it got trickier because of how to tile in the extras and so forth presented a new challenge. Did I hear correctly? You said Q-Take. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, it's a, it's a tap system. A lot of times um, when you're on set now, there is a video playback or wow, I forget what the term terminology that they use now because it's it's changed with digital where you have the DIT, the digital imaging technician who feeds to playback so they can playback takes for you. But that whoever that is working on the show is able to often broadcast to other people on set on their iPads or whatever it is 
And now they, through a closed network, they can do that remotely. So I'm watching live from here. It's expensive. They only do it for certain people. And it's, you know, if some locations have better connectivity than others, thankfully, this film was mostly on set because we had to not use locations because of COVID risks. You know, I don't know that that would have been the case in the initial shoot, but I would have been there. So it wouldn't have been as much of a problem. I would be watching on my laptop out of my left eye while my right eye was editing. Um, <laughs> and sometimes Alice would text and say, take a look at this. Is this right? Or this, you know, it was a way to keep the dialogue going while I was working. So Myron, you came in, I'm guessing it was good timing then for whatever reason between your projects. And then how was COVID a continuing factor while you were working? It was pre-vaccines, so I was limited to cutting with Lynn at his house, and I couldn't travel a whole lot. I live in LA, so um, when Lynn called, um, I asked my wife, what do you think? And she was like, well, you can't say no to Lynn. And we knew that I couldn't, I was going to be limited to traveling to go see the family. So it was a, a lot of time just away from the family. Uh, my assistants, um, this was the same with Andy, I believe, were in the city in their apartments, and I was with Lynn at his place, and so we were all separated and, you know, cutting a, you know, a, a fairly contained, but it was a complex film, so we would, you know, we were doing everything, VFX reviews, working with my music editors, you know, everything was remote. You know, working on In the Heights, it was mostly in um, in an office with this big expanded team. And now I had to learn how to work the same way remotely, you know, which we all we all have had to do. But for me, you know, being spoiled on a musical with everybody you were right next door, there was a big difference. So I just had to adjust and and learn how to have have a lot of these type of zooms and and um talk to nancy allen and john davis our music editors and say i've recut come to your senses after andy already cut it a certain way i have to recut it a certain way like does this make sense musically <laughs> you know and doing that all over zoom is just it's what we've all had to do just learn how to do that remotely and then the big thing for me was i'm so part of using screenings as part of the process of making the film better and that was harder to do with covid but to you know send the cuts to other people but also get everyone in a room and that took some while to get netflix and the producers comfortable to be able to do that eventually the vaccines did come rolling around so that made it a little easier to do that but just to be able to screen the movie and say i mean it just proves with your description of like what this movie is skid that, you know, it's hard to like put it in a box and just say, it's about this. It's about, is it about, you know, rent? No, it's not about rent. Is it about uh superbia? You know, this other musical that he was writing? No. And so anyways, there was a lot of things to, you know, screen for an audience and say, are you confused by this? Do you understand this? Do you like these characters? And just to be able to take that data eventually and to be able to start reworking the film based on those screenings. So I would say it was a slower process to some degree. You know, I was just reworking the film, you know, gradually. And then once I could screen, then I could, you know, really dive in. We mentioned earlier that Lynn considers John Larson a big influence. Uh, in fact, Lynn played John Larson in the three-person show. Talk to me more about working with him and what of his vision he was bringing to this. The thing that you look for in a director, always, or at least what I look for, is someone who is decisive. 
I forget who it is who said it, but it doesn't matter whether a director has technical expertise or knows exactly what they're going to do in advance and how much they storyboard and how much they plan. It's the ability to make a decision and have a consistency to it is the key to developing and delivering a vision, right? And I found Lynn to be very clear-headed and very decisive about what he wanted and where he was going with things and what the choices were creatively and how to get through them. And he was always gracious and kind about it in terms of looking at alternatives. And that's all you ask for in a director, I think. It's always important to know who's making the choices, who's making the decisions in the room. There are plenty of unfortunate situations on a film where that's not the case. And I was grateful for the fact that that's what it was on this one. And that's who Lynn is. It was also great considering he hadn't done it before. I mean, you know, there was more than one person that I had heard react to the film saying, I can't believe this is a first time director. And it's because the choices and the ideas in the filmmaking are so clear, but they're also not static, meaning he adapted and changed things based on stuff he found he could recognize was and was not working. And that's part of his background as being a creative vision behind other works that have nothing to do with filmmaking, but he's always wanted to be a filmmaker. And, you know, now he is. I would agree with that. Like it was amazing after having, <laughs> you know, when he, when we first started screening for an audience, he was like, Oh, this is just like previews in the theater. And he really was able to like take that data and it's like, okay, now this is how we tweak this joke or, or give me some options for tweaking this joke or working on this performance. And so it was pretty amazing how, flexible he was in the edit and I certainly there was plenty of film first time filmmakers where you're like I know you're a genius but can we just try this other option and it, it never was like that with someone who is a genius um to be able to you know try uh 20 different options you know for any given problem you can see the analogies between what he has done and continues to do in theater and filmmaking and he would constantly recognize them and bring them up like Myron just mentioned you know, and also how editing is like the writing process back again. He was able to dig his way in that way. And, you know, and it's interesting to hear him speak about, you know, how he took moments from the three-person staging of, of Tick, Tick, Boom, but also I guess he went to like Library of Congress with Steve Levinson and there was other versions of, of the play that existed. And I don't know, there's something about him that he's very... Postmodern is the wrong word, but he's able to mash things up in, in a fun way that is kind of an editor's dream. And I think that the film is reflective of his his brain in some ways. And this thing that he was making, you know, this autobiographical memoir, memory piece. Even as someone working on it, I didn't necessarily know or remember all the time what came from the one person show, what came from the three person show, what came from autobiographical details that he found from his research or talking with Julie Larson or Victoria Leacock or other people or things that Stephen brought to it. There was this mashup of influences and contextual ideas and references that all weaved their way in in a way that was so organic that sometimes only he knew what they were. I would recognize them, but they, they fit. They didn't feel like tangents, which is the kind of problem you usually have when you're taking something and combining all the ideas together. I want to dive a little deeper into that idea of combining different elements. Because what strikes me about the film is you have this mashup, really, of stage work 
and traditional musical numbers and other cutaway elements. And I'm curious, on those scenes where it's uh, more complicated back and forth, how much of that was scripted versus something that you discovered in the editing process? It's a mix. I mean, some of them are more clearly plotted out. Some of them were shot with more flexibility and other ones were not really at all. But it's true of kind of all the musical numbers. I think a lot of times filmed musicals get preoccupied with the thesis or conceit of how we're going to incorporate the musical numbers and how we're going to transition from one to the other. This one is unique in that it gets it over with almost immediately. And then each one is different. Each number has kind of some difference in its approach with respect to that, how it's intercut, if it's intercut, and what the interchange is, which is true of the film. But I mean, part of it is when you look at the scope of a musical, the arc of a musical, there needs to be some dynamics in terms of the numbers like this is a ballad and this is an uptempo thing and then so forth. And I think part of the language of the film is the dynamics of the different numbers is what their grammar is. And I think it's such it didn't it didn't feel like a preoccupied or labored, oh, we're doing one of these again. <laughs> you know, they all they all have their own language to them. Not overthought, not inflexible, but enough that each one felt fresh, I thought. And the ones that didn't, <laughs> which they would want to, then they either get changed or they don't survive, which is true of any movie, you know. But that's an interesting contextual problem to solve. It was helpful to have the stage performance to help lead us into memory and different, you know, whether it's archival or shots of the apartment or just somebody singing in this sort of fantasy, magical way. But you always have the stage just sort of ground you to some extent. And I don't know that for some reason I just gave, at least it gave me liberties that I didn't really have on In the Heights <laughs> where I could just felt like, well, this is his point of view. We can do whatever we want to do. Um, as long as, you know, it's not too cutty or too gratuitous. There was a long monologue at the beginning, which included him talking about swimming and then having his membership at the YMCA pool, I believe. And eventually we just trimmed that out, but I still wanted shots of the pool, but I wanted to steal some shots that Andy had put in for swimming later in the lot. So I was able to sneak some of that stuff in without having to like explain to people that he had this membership, you know, just like this is a day in the life of jobs at Larson. Anyways, I just felt like we had a, some liberties, but um, it did help to have the stage sort of ground the point of view. He's telling the story and then, um, you yeah, know, going from there. Well, before we talk about specific scenes, I want to ask you guys about a couple of overarching themes or techniques that jumped out to me, and then have you add any that uh, perhaps mattered to you, but th that I've missed. The first I want to ask about is the concept of time. And I'm thinking specifically of ticking as an ongoing theme. It just represents pressure for him, right? And his conflict and his ultimate choices. Is he running out of time in terms of, you know, holding on to the dream of being a successful musical? Is he making a successful musical? Is he running out of time with his girlfriend and making a life choice about whether he's going to take a longer commitment with her and live with her and move on and, uh, you know, define the corners of his life? Is he running out of time with his friends? These are all the, the pressures that build up on him. And of course, the thing he ran out of time with was the thing he didn't. He was, he was going to be out of time with all of it. He didn't know that. 
Um, but that's sort of the thing hanging over the movie that it's all context, whether, you know, to him, his biggest pressure, which may seem selfish to somebody else, is just whether he's going to be a big successful star writer or not. Meanwhile, everybody else is facing their own personal dilemmas of running out of their own time. It was only after he grew up a little bit and understood some of that did his perspective and his writing change and he became a different artist. Yeah, so it was another fun thing to play with. You know, Andy and Lynn had already placed the idea of the ticking throughout the film. And so when Lynn said, can we put some more of it in? You know, just trying to find places that felt very organic. I love the this big fight with therapy. And then just to put a little ticking, you know, I put this subway shot of him um, riding the train, you know, on the way to the focus group. And just to have that just subtle reminder of like, don't forget, you still have to write the song. You still aren't finished. You know, this, again, this idea of pressure that Andy was talking about. And then also not going overboard with it, you know, because <laughs> a good idea you needs to, you know, be contained as well. So, well, it's what you ended up doing there is kind of saving it for the, the peak pressure moments. Whereas originally the film kind of started with it as an idea, which always felt a little strange to me because it was at a point in his life where he's evolved and maybe not feeling that same pressure. But I don't know what your guys' conversation was about that. But I mean, I know what, I know why the ways that it changed were for other reasons, but I always kind of recognized it as an aspect that was part of the neuroses of the character that maybe a little goes a long way. Skid, there used to be a, a scene with him backstage basically getting ready to perform Tick, Tick, Boom in front of the crowd, and he's looking at a clock. And right away, we established the ticking. But God, there was so many <laughs> debates, especially with the producers and Lynn and I about like whether to keep that. And it was something that was almost still going to be in the movie up to like the last couple of days. But it, it was this sort of idea, like maybe he's evolved <laughs> since then. And now he's telling the story of the ticking um, rather than the ticking is still haunting him. And again, to, ha to have the audience fall in love with Jonathan and then experience the neuroses is something we played around with a lot. So yeah, the ticking could, you know, that could get, you know, hard for an audience if that's too much up front, I guess. It makes it not the first thing you learn about him, which I think is helpful. There's another technique that uh, reoccurs throughout the movie, and that's the overlay when he's writing in the notebook. That was an idea I had uh, early on in the assembly process, even in the initial part of the shoot, because I remember thinking, you know, Lynn talked about, this idea of a reveal at the end that all these notes that he's, you constantly see that he's writing in his pad and all these notes that he's written down these questions, which are the end song, lay themselves out on the floor as like his ideas for future songs. And I felt like it needs more of a motif or visual setup, this idea of words and questions and ideas hanging in his head, and that we needed to find a way to thread that in the movie. And we had these moments that are kind of like these dead pauses of him writing in a pad, which are not particularly visually interesting in the body of a scene. So it was an idea to just kind of seed it for later. Hey, when he's writing in this notebook, it's important. And so that we had a few moments where we do that, and then the words, the lyrics find themselves in the pool, which becomes makes that part of the motif. Words on the screen when they're, you know, we're scanning through superbia, trying to make it a the idea of him being a lyricist, dancing through the movie and paying off at the end. That was where it came from. It wasn't a scripted thing. It was just to 
um, I knew it was a notion that wasn't quite landing. And if there was a way to solidify it, it would help us. What I love about it too, is that it shows a writer's process. And I think you would get that maybe if you saw a pad too, but there's something about seeing it on the screen that feels like, it, you know, you get to be you know, part of his thought process and recognize, you know, that he's trying to figure things out. I mean, I don't know how many times we've seen the artist's process, but for some reason that this really lands for me to see it on the screen and then culminating with swimming in, you know, the words have come to your senses or you know, developing in the background. And then, and then you get the reveal. The only problem is like, then Andy left and then I had to develop it with, <laughs> with the VFX company to like make it as elegant as possible. Like, God damn you. Like, but uh, uh, it was, it was mocked it was like, up. <laughs> I don't no, it was, it was great. But, um, but yeah, there was this sort of like giving people enough time to read it and, you know, all that sort of fun stuff. I just remember when we got the dailies and I was looking at it and there was these kind of afterthought inserts of pads and people writing them. And I was like, this is painful to cut to. And I don't want to cut to a pad in the middle of the scene. How can we make it integrated? And that's that's where that came from. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's fascinating to talk about these solutions to issues with the film that are developed through the editing process and not containing the original script. Are there other elements or themes that you think were important for this movie as far as how you approached it as editors? You know, one thing that I, you always end up finding is the evolution of ideas through a movie and how to make sure that they're tracked properly and that you're setting up whatever it is you want to pay off later and always finding ways to reference those ideas along the way if you can introduce them editorially in some creative way. There's not always great opportunities for it, but when you do, it, it helps the feeling of tying things together as one instead of out of the blue. You know, Andy and Lynn had put in uh, quite a bit of archival footage later in the film, sort of describing suburbia to the audience. And to some degree, um, at the end with uh, Louder Than Words, you know, showing basically Jonathan's legacy with Rent. And that inspired using archival at the beginning of the film with setting up the frame. And I don't think we would have ever gotten to that point if that hadn't already been experimented with in the beginning. I don't think I would have necessarily gone there if that wasn't buzzing in my brain. It was interesting that we pulled that stuff out later, but except for like one shot, but then ended up using a sort of, you know, a different use of it, but still the idea of, you know, the texture of archival and, you know. Lynn and Alice had the smart instinct of running the video camera while they were shooting 3090 in the stage in the same way that Jonathan's archival performance was documented so that we might throw it in or might use it. We knew we were going to use it at the end, but, you know, it'd be great to have and it wasn't hard to get, but it wasn't a priority. It's interesting to think about it in terms of the evolution of how the archival got there. My recollection is the first notion of using archival had nothing to do with this stuff and is in a sequence that was ultimately cut, which is when he's explaining what superbia is to the, the other people in the workshop when they're confused about what it means, and he starts to describe it. And it's kind of this elaborate explanation that he gives of this convoluted story. But what's clear, to, I mean, it's hard to describe without being able to see it, but we were using images from today to suggest that how Larson was ahead of his time with this idea. 
that the stories about people who stare at screens all the time, for example. So we had all these clips of that and we used this archive without knowing sort of that it was kind of bloating it in a way, but it was kind of Lynn's notion, but just how to make it funnier. I mean, I suspect it was kind of a time suck in the end for a fairly small joke, but it still gave us license to start to add archival elsewhere in the movie. So it wasn't a one-off and the place it clicked in was the end of the movie which then kind of gave Myron other ideas towards how to make it a, a bookend. But it wasn't a scripted conceit. It was just an idea that Lynn and I both had for somewhere else that then evolved. Well, let's dive deeper into the coming together of the film opening, and that leads into that first performance of 3090. You know, I, again, I was inspired by the ending of the film because the ending of the film ends with Betacam, and then when I realized that I had most of the beginning of the monologue in 3090 on Betacam, that started to just inspire me to keep trying. I mean, I must have tried a couple dozen versions of the opening of this movie, everything from the piano being unveiled from Y to, you know, starting different scenes at the beginning of the film is like a flash forward. But I... I landed on the beta camera and that gave us license to try Susan's voiceover, which took a lot of time, a lot of rewrites. And then we did additional shooting with Susan and Jonathan in the diner, you know, which was shot in beta camera and then trying to figure out a way to then get into our film or 16.9 sort of footage, you know, basically him starting to play the piano and then sucking us in that way. But it, that frame that starting the movie that it was quite an evolution of just trying so many different ideas and being pretty close to failing almost all the time. And then riffing off of the, the grammar and the language that Lynn and, and Andy had already established with the director's cut and then just kind of, you know, reworking it, figuring out how to start and stop the piano playing and, and then just, you know, build up, you know, we had a reshoot in the diner with uh, his, his friends. So be able to cut that and insert a very quick scene in the middle of the, of a musical number is no easy feat. So, you know, just experimenting a lot and, and using the tools of what had already been established with the director's cut. So Myron, what strikes me about what you just said, additionally interesting is that so those intercut scenes of them in the diner, you needed it. And so that was part of the reshoots because of the way that the edit was coming together and knowing what you need in the film overall and wanting to sort of establish that early on. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Well, it replaced a different scene. There was a different scene that was just between Michael and Jonathan about Michael packing, moving out of the apartment. And Jonathan was talking about freaking out <laughs> this play and nobody has to write his song you know it was all stress and the scene that was also that ultimately replaced it a introduced his other friendships like freddie and caroline and where he worked in a way that was more great you know less neurotic but yeah it did help introduce the characters right i mean that was i'm sure that's what the conversation was i mean we knew we knew we had to get Freddie somehow to land sooner and same with Caroline that they were, you know, that world was underrepresented in the front part of the movie for us to be invested in what was happening with them. Yeah. Again, the, you know, the screening process helped this because people would say, yeah, I love the film, but I, I don't 
I don't like or know Freddie. I don't know uh, Carolyn. And, um, you know, when we got to the party for the first time where they do that great uh, Boho Days uh, number, you know, a lot of people were like, this is amazing, but I don't care about any of these people. So just to give people, uh, the audience, a little bit of a taste of what these characters are, establish, even if in a fleeting way, what a workshop is, you know, who is this guy? There was a lot of love for scenes in the diner. So to rebuild the diner on, you know, which is an easy task on set and to shoot a scene and do it quickly. Um, yeah, but, but it was all out of like, again, screening the film, figuring out, you know, what the audience needed. And then um, Steve Levinson would come to Lynn's place and we'd sit there and I, I, I wrote, in cards, you know, scene at diner between <laughs> between friends, and I was pitching scenes, and they're like, like, okay, now you geniuses actually write this scene, <laughs> the, the the scene that I'm pitching here, you know. And at some point, you know, the the first 15 minutes was just like a bunch of cards, <laughs> and uh, part of the director's cut, you know, he really sort of pulled it all apart to put it back together again. Well, talking about the diner brings me to the next scene I want to ask about, and that's when they have brunch and their musical number is Sunday. For people who are not theater people, they might have noticed that there are all these cameos of current day luminaries from that scene. Yeah, they're all Broadway legends. And it was it was Lynn's idea from the get-go that because that number is essentially an homage to a Stephen Sondheim piece, that that would be the place to kind of honor all these people that had come before in some kind of grace note way. So shooting that was a pretty big logistical challenge as well as cutting it because, you know, we were in the heat of COVID and we had to get all these people together. And there was one plan for it before we shut down and then had to come up with a completely different safe one after the fact um, where everybody was shot in different passes. Um, anytime you see a wide shot, most of the people weren't in a room together. So that made things interesting from a, a logistical point of view. Um, and also, you know, scheduling and shooting point of view, it makes everything go twice as five, four or five times as long if you have to shoot every shot five times. But, you know, there was a lot of great planning from our producers and AD and everybody to figure it out. And um, I was on the Q-Take with it live, trying to make sure we got everything we needed. But even then we knew there were some, legends that Lynn wanted to get in that we weren't able to get in in our schedule and have to come back and pick up and that we needed some other details later in in the sequence um so those were picked up in a later shoot but the base of it all was done kind of in this weird fractured way that you know i don't think anyone was fully sure that it would come together but i i put together quick tile pass of it and came to set and showed it to Lynn like the day it was maybe two days after he shot it. And he was like, yeah, we're all good. <laughs> you know, apart from, we know what we still need. There were no problems, but it was, um, you know, it was a miracle of planning to get that pulled off. It seems with so many challenges in the execution, in some ways it ties your hands as an editor, does it not? And that there's not a lot of exploring to do afterwards because just getting the elements was so much work up front. Yeah, there's always a way. <laughs> there's always a way and you always talk about say certain safety valves that you get you know which we did and i asked for and even as shot there were things that you know you always overlook something like there was a whole section of the of action that wasn't really covered in the song 
that we had to figure out how to deal with just because of the way it was shot on pieces. It's never completely inflexible. There's always something you can do. Yeah, I remember when Andy was like, uh, you know, Sunday was already in pretty good shape, you know, editorially, but then he was like, yeah, we're going to do, we're going to shoot more. I was like, what? We're going to shoot, <laughs> let's not mess with this thing. Okay, let's, uh, you know, I was terrified to like, you know, when you know this is going to be one of, uh, one of the favorites of the film, but then you're like, oh, okay, now I've got these new pieces and I don't really have a choice. I have to put, <laughs> to put them in. And um, you start to think, oh, this, I can't imagine it any other way, but um, you could, that's just what editors do, right? They, they get footage and then they, their brains start to go into hyperdrive and you start to recut it in your head and then, you know, you try things out. And... It never hurts to, you're always going to explore the options and figure out ways to thread it another way and and uh, i'm always looking at options i never i never show one cut of a scene or if i have a cut of a scene scene i always have other avenues available as alternates because there's always a conversation about what's possible and what isn't possible and it also pushes my i'm also learned to push myself creatively that way that there's not one way that you get stuck in your track about how a scene should be put together yeah, but you are also working with the additional challenge of these cameos that, like, there is going to be an expectation that the people, particularly even with the reshoots, Myron, to your point about adding people in, that they're going to show up in the film. I mean, this is not a Terrence Malick film where the actor doesn't know if they're going to make the cut or not. Like, these people, there's an expectation that you're going to see them all. Shoot, shoot a Rivera after the fact. She's going in the, she's going into the movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, right. Right. That's a given. Yeah. Bernadette Peters is in there and everybody they all you have to see everybody's face at least once they were gracious enough to show up for it they, you know, <laughs> I think that I think that's a given well it's a bit of change of pace but talk to me about the music video for the song play game uh where there's a character Hawk Smooth it's 90s style video talk to me more about how that came together Lynn had a very specific reference for that and um I knew right away what he was talking about. We shot that over a few days of rounds, like one on the set and then a couple against green and black and so forth. But it was all emulating a very specific video style or set of you know, MTV Raps videos, regular rotation videos that um, I think we nailed. I mean, you know, I, I even use some of the same you know, crappy slow-mo that they do and like other <laughs> other other reference clips to just try and get it to feel exactly of the same piece. I mean, it is a bit of a joke number, right? I mean, it's a joke when Jonathan did it in the original piece. And I think it was just important to Lynn to capture the time and spirit of that cultural moment. Hawk Smooth is Tarek Trotter or Black Thought, and he's awesome. But I kind of embellished it with a lot, we had some kind of basic stock, but I embellished it with a lot of other graphic elements and stock things that were taken from what people used to do at the time. I'd say the, the, there were a couple videos that we talked about, but the one that was kind of the hero video was Round the Way Girl. <laughs> and <laughs> because that that's very of that moment, 1992 or whatever it was, or 90 even. There's a small moment, and it might even be part of the joke, but I like the way that when Jonathan is walking into the workshop, he walks past Hawk, who's waiting to audition. And so the video ends up not being sort of a standalone thing, but does integrate into the rest of the movie, even if that's just a small little bit. Well, it's also saying something about Larson's point of view, right? Why it's done as a, a rap joke, you know, you could debate, but what it's saying about the theater world and, you know, the this idea of 
being an artist or selling out or like what's happening to the art of theater. It's kind of an interesting way to do it with some kind of pop artifact. So for the next scene I want to dive into, we spoke earlier about the integration of elements, the stage show itself, and then the cutaways and interactions. And I think a musical number that really captures that challenge would be therapy, where you're having the fight, but there's also a very specific stage performance going on at the same time. You know, that number originally, I think the reference points for it are pretty clear. I always thought of Chicago with it, but... Uh, you know, the number was much longer originally and the fight escalates and kind of goes to some pretty extreme places. But, you know, ultimately what makes the point about about him and where his priorities are and where her priorities are is it's all still delivered. But Lynn and I had done a job of trimming it and um, Myron took that a couple steps further. The biggest problem with that, or not, not a problem, but the challenge with it was, you know, the scene itself the fight scene, the dialogue scene was just shot as a scene. There was no specific roadmap as to how it was going to intercut with the song. And I felt it was important to cut the scene accordingly so that we could kind of have the freedom to pick and choose where to go back and forth and not cut it as an intercut first. So the musical number was cut first by itself. The fight was cut first by itself. And then I did a couple passes trying to merge them together. The challenge with it is that the song is an ever increasing tempo. So figuring out how to bridge that and condense it from what was originally intended was tricky in terms of a tempo map that I worked with Nancy Allen on at first. But, you know, Myron can talk about what his challenges were with that taking it a step further because it still has to track as one acceleration. It's just the tighter that is, the harder it is to do, I think. Once I had, you know, the cut and then trying to, again, trying to cut it down even further, you don't know where that's going to break. And then going to the music guys and you're going to have to speed this up to help make that bridge even more, feel even more smoother, isn't always easy. Again, this was once we had screened the film and there was a degree to basically where the scene started, where there was a lot of screaming at each other in the beginning. And you know, I had to pull that way back, especially on Jonathan's side, because he just seemed like a monster at first. And I'm like, we can't start at a hundred here. Like, we're not gonna, we're not gonna have any scene here if we don't, if we can't build this up. But then, you know, it's not an easy song to cut down. And they're never easy, but especially, you know, something that is so. Once you have the accelerator, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to pull back, or you know, it's hard to. The challenge I found was trying to find where to increase the tempo gradually instead of on a cut. And that, you know, that the scene had this amount of time gracefully to get from this BPM to that BPM by the time we were back at the stage. It was a bit of a back and forth with Nancy at first trying to figure out, um, well, if I add eight frames here, then this would be more graceful if I add you know, a uh, full three seconds here would even be better, but I don't want that. So what's the in-between mark that'll get me to the, you know, there was a lot of rounds of that to get to a place that was, that felt like you didn't feel it jump. <laughs> I didn't want it. That was my goal was not to, not to, you know, that it's increasing, but not to say, oh, wait, did we just jump forward? You know, there was moments where Lynn was like, no, I want this 
piece of lyrics to go in between this line of dialogue. I was like, oh my God, how am I going to do how am I such gonna, a puzzle? Yeah. Yeah. It's how am I going to do this? You know, sometimes you can easily ship something to your music editor and sometimes you're just like, okay, I'm just going to keep trying to find, you're making up your own rhythm in some weird way with dialogue in this crazy song. And then at the same time, you know, Andy did this really beautiful job just accelerating the cutting on the stage too. But then I was like working with the music editors to like make sure everything felt grounded. So I'm like, it was literally the last thing I cut on the film was just just micro editing, you know, frames to make sure everything felt grounded and in sync. And I was like, I'm literally adjusting a hundred edits, you know, that are already beautifully done, but I'm just slipping them by, you know, it's just like, just madness a little bit. One of the tricks with that, there was a COVID challenge here where there were some numbers shot before the shutdown where there was, it was live singing. And then there were numbers shot after the shutdown where that was not permissible, depending on who was present. Therapy was an example of a number where it was mostly not. And most takes don't have live singing and a few takes did. But as the tempo is increasing like that, to expect Andrew and Vanessa to act and be in perfect sync with their pre-record, it was a nightmare. So you had to try and figure out um, there was a lot of dialogue vocal editing that was happening even just in the assembly process to make sure we weren't so I know exactly what Myron's talking about because you could slip it two frames to make a cut work but then they're completely out of sync with what's happening and it's just an endless maze of tempo mapping and remapping. So it seemed like this where you know in advance that there's going to be challenges that have to be solved in editing. How is it captured in the original script? It basically said, which was, you know, I'm not knocking Stephen, but he said, as they're arguing, these lyrics on this side of the screen will intercut with this dialogue here. And it's not laid out specifically how that's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, I knew that they had to, co you know, they had to exist separately, as I said before, and then make them. There were certain things that were meant to play against each other or bat one right after the other as landmarks. But, you know, to be fair, you can't really tie yourself down like that in shooting a sequence like that or conceiving a sequence like that. Yeah, and it wasn't a knock on my part either. It would be foolhardy to try, not knowing what you were actually going to get. And so I was curious just how it was sort of the challenge was documented, if you will, as sort of an idea. It's just as simple as that. They're going to intercut. Fix it in post. <laughs> 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 That's also the fun of it it's not necessarily a bad thing <laughs> that this was that there is so complicated to figure out there's no wrong answer in terms of figuring out how to make those things interact and we changed them a few times where certain dialogue sections played relative to the song and sticking out a section of the song and you know going back and forth and trying to figure out how they could accelerate together the fight and the music What's fun to, you know, be an editor to come on to something that's already established as well is you see his his problem solving, <laughs> see Andy's problem solving, and then you're like, okay, now it's your turn. And they, you know, that's when Lynn's like, okay, you're are you ready for this? Are you ready to now do your version of intercutting the, you know, and like, okay, here we go. And, um, but it's good to see like, okay, these are the possibilities, which you know only existed for Andy in script form you know, which is two lines of dialogue, you have vocals and dialogue. So have a roadmap and then 
say, okay, now, now I can break it open again if I have to, or I can cut it down, or I can, you know, just play with this in a, in a, in a different way. So talk to me about the scene constructed around the number swimming. The music number for swimming had its, also had its COVID challenges, but ultimately was figured out. And Alice and I had a lot of conversations with Lynn about how to maximize our coverage there so that we had enough dynamics grammatically to have new ways of doing each lap because watching someone swimming laps is not a particularly cinematic or exciting activity. So how to keep that evolving with him glancing at the girl who reminds him of Susan and gets him inspired for the song. So that was done over a few days and we all had our lists of ideas and things to shoot that were storyboarded and then there was the underwater photographer who came on who Lynn gave license to try some other shots for us and we were worried or at least I was worried because I had shot other things underwater and I know how challenging it is particularly for the actors when you suddenly have a 33 second section underwater that the actor is supposed to perform I know from past experiences if you get something that lasts more than three and a half seconds you're lucky so I didn't know quite how they were going to do that. And I kept suggesting different shots that could help me get through that if there was a struggle. And as it turns out, Andrew's an incredible swimmer and none of that was a problem. So we got, we got well more than we needed there. I think we got plenty of what we needed there, which was great. It was more just about the lap swimming. And then the initial challenge that Lynn and I had with it was how to cut it down from what the original piece was which had a few too many references to him kind of leering at this girl on the side of the pool, which, um, you know, it kind of had a joke associated with it. Like the girl reacts to him staring at her too much. It just seemed like it was overkill. So we reduced that to what we thought was the essential bits. The main evolution that happened after that point, which Marlon can talk about is the, is the underwater stuff and the visual effects, because that was just kind of a, seed of a conceit there that we hadn't fully figured out yet. You know, it was pretty mapped out as far as the time is concerned, but just trying to figure out whether or not, you know, how to bring those in organically and make them, I don't know, just visually elegant. I was joking with Andy, like, you know, when he's first rubbing off the sand or whatever it is, the dust, you know, just trying to make that sort of really elegant versus like, like some scene out of the mummy or something like just to just to make the words on the screens uh, in back of him, you know, feel elegant and part of uh, one piece just took a lot of pushing, you know, um, my role, whether I liked it or not, was just to keep pushing visual effects all the way to the end and going back to them saying, not good enough, try this. <laughs> and, um, you know, that could be um, just a long process where you just keep trying versions of what does a note look like underwater or you know what is um words in the back of a jonathan look like as they they come on you know what's also interesting to me is how you know when andy says we have to cut down a section when you're cutting down something musically that's not so easy or when you're rewriting something <laughs> that could take days if not weeks trying to figure out how to do that in, in a particular song whether it's therapy or come to your senses which we both rewrote it cut down many times and so when he says oh we just took out this section <laughs> I, i'm thinking I, I shudder to think how long and how hard that is yeah that process 
I mean, you know, I did have Lynn Manuel Miranda sitting in the room with me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not like it's not like a head scratcher when it's him. You know, like he's able to. If I could turn to him and say, "If I go from this bar to this bar, does that work for you?" And he would say yes or no. Maybe from this bar to this bar would be better. And then we could cut in the middle of this. And then uh, you know, so I had a, I had a, I could cheat. But yes, it, it's not always as easy as it sounds because it's not as designed. Of course. The one little thing I did on Play Game, which was just cut down one reference that he wanted to lose. And he said to me, well, you know, this is actually after cutting much more complicated things, you know, over the course of it, I was like, well, I got to hand it to you, not a cut music. I'm like, that's kind of like the blessing you want to hear from, from Lynn. I'm like, I'm like. <laughs> the next musical number I want to ask you guys about is why which is where Andrew's playing the piano in the park and it's intercut with memories that are also largely video cam square. Well, that sequence was shot pre-COVID or actually the night before the last day of our shoot before we shut down. And we knew it was pretty special at the time. Originally, it was not really conceived as archival footage. It was like full-on theatrical scene performances in a school, school plays, audience bowing, all this stuff. And Jonathan playing at the piano was going to be present in these flashbacks. So he would be playing and singing in the corner of the frame in these other locations, remembering his childhood and his friendship with Michael. And it would track through these different things. That was obviously impossible to shoot once we entered COVID world, because you had to get all these kids together and do all these other things. So we knew that as a number in itself, that cinematically it was hard for it to stand alone as just Jonathan sitting at a piano in the Delacorte, because it doesn't hold up over that time visually. And that's something you can do in the theater. You can't do it in a film. And it needed to evolve. And we knew we needed to see the children because that was part of it. So Lynn brought some footage of his own childhood to the equation, school plays and stuff that we used for those ideas. And then we turned some other footage from both test shoot and elsewhere in the film outtakes to play like video footage as he became an, a young adult as kind of a placeholder for knowing we would have to reshoot something that would fit those holes in a way that was safe, which happened after I was gone, but that was the template for that. People love that archival footage with Lynn. Like at, at some point they were like, well, maybe we should keep this footage in, in the, in the film. Like a, a couple of uh, the producers just loved it so much. I was like, I so when we, you know, it was sort of like Sunday when we were shooting this footage, it was like, oh my God, this is such a beautiful sequence. Now I have this new footage mm -hmm. that I have to now insert there. It's no longer um, Lynn, but our, casted sort of Michael and Jonathan. So to sort of place that in carefully without destroying what was already beautifully built. And, yeah, and again, it was another new element too. So it was like a, a piece of Super 8 that was shot. And that also was like, well, maybe I should put a little piece of that at the beginning of the film, you know, when we were first talking about Michael. So anyways, it was um, an evolution, an evolution from where uh, Andy started with Lynn and this original archival, archival stuff and then what I was playing around with. Well, Myron, it's probably a question for you. I know that at the end of that sequence, 
there's one shot that is not done in an archival style where the two boys are sitting on the dock. I know how that spoke to me and, and sort of the emotion that it evoked, but I'm curious about your and Lynn's thought process behind it. Yeah, it wasn't when they shot it, I wasn't sure how to use it because we were breaking, you know, again, we were breaking some kind of established visual grammar. Okay, now we're doing a flashback that's outside of this. And, but, you know, sometimes you just have a piece of footage and you don't know where to place it. And, and you just keep trying to place things where you feel like you get a little goosebump in the back of your neck. And once you place it, like, okay, maybe that's where it should live. And so you just kind of take a chance of, uh, originally we actually had these shots reversed where you first cut to older Michael and Jonathan later and you have the kids earlier. But I said, no, I, I think maybe they'll, maybe it'll land more emotionally if we reverse it, which was just counterintuitive. But for some reason, you know, these things don't always make sense until you try it. And then you're like, yeah, that for some reason it just makes sense to have you know, going back to this innocent moment where they first met and sitting on a dock together. And anyways. Personally, and again, intentions aside, I found that the archival footage captured very much John's nostalgia while he was playing the song in the, in the past. But then having that shot at the end that was not archival brought that forward and sort of motivates then his going back to Michael and having their conversation, like sort of bringing the past back to the present. So... I found it very effective, whether it was just intuition or uh, intent. Uh, I really like that that small bit. It's all intuitive. But it, but I think what I, where I was confused is that he's actually talking about a, a moment like this during real life um, in the monologue. So I kind of feel like real life and why are you know they're they're tied to one another. So he, he's talking about this, yeah, this innocent moment with uh, with his you know best friend and then to just to be reminded of that, to be, to land on that, that this is, this is what it's all about for him. You know, this relationship, so much of editing is just intuition and trying things and, you know, listening to yourself until, you know, till tears start to form in your eyes. <laughs> and then you're like, okay, that must mean something. I, I guess I'll, <laughs> I guess I'll, I guess I'll put it there. Talk to me about the final song from the performance louder than words. And then how that takes us into the wrap up of the film. The core idea of the, at least cinematically of that number, is that that's when we finally show the audience of the frame performance, the tick, tick, boom performance, and see that all these people from his life are there. Lyrically, it references certain things that he has with uh, in his experience with some of these characters and what their significance is to him, whether it's Susan or Michael or whomever else that comes up in one way or another. So... Obviously, it's also the song of questions, right? So that it's just it's, the lyrics are all questions that are the things that have come up through the film in his pad and on the floor as his inspiration that also kind of clearly lead into what becomes, for those who know, what Rent is about and what social significance there is to his work, societal significance. And then, of course, the unresolved ending that I think works emotionally. <laughs> I hope it does. I guess that, I don't know what else there is. I mean, there was a, from an editorial point of view, when I was still on the film, we had started, that was when we started to experiment with introducing the archival for people to understand what Rent was and what happened to Jonathan, which obviously turned into more of a bookend idea and opened up 
for Myron and Lynn to introduce more archival elements of, and relationships, visuals in the end, not unlike you see the sphere, you know, the other details of his world in 3090, louder than words became more of a bookend number than just a final curtain call. Yeah, I think that um, Lynn was allergic to this idea of coming off too saccharine at the end of the movie and especially with a biopic. So how to do that elegantly. And once I started playing around with like footage within the number and doing flashbacks or trying to tell some kind of story of, of Jonathan there, you know, I became very nervous about, you know, where, where, where's the line of, you know, tipping into a saccharine biopic ending and to some degree, just trying to be, um, again, elegant and just, just constrain myself from doing too much there. But, you know, I do think we had some liberties because we had this book in and we had a little bit of this voiceover with Susan. You know, the number was always amazing. It always left me in tears at the end of the film. But to, you know, be able to just keep pushing harder until it broke, you know, just trying to find that line, you know, you just keep experimenting. Hopefully we didn't break it, Andy. No, you didn't break it. Well, I think you found that you found the challenge. That, I mean, the challenge that we were talking about at my departure point was we were trying to come up with a way to flash forward and show what happened with Jonathan's legacy and how what he meant kind of spread out into the world. But the problem with it is that it's not, it's clearly not from Jonathan's perspective, right? So you kind of took some of that stuff and put it at the front of the movie before we're in his point of view as context, as opposed to just tagging it on at the end, which is what makes it a bookend, which I think is the right solution. And I think it was where it would have had one way or another that we needed to say it and that the best place to get it out is up front. But it is a tricky thing because it was always a topic of conversation, like what part of the context is in the movie that we have to explain to people what the movie is, um, what part of the context is outside of the movie. And, you know, like you have these conversations like Mank had come out and we were talking about like, imagine David Fincher explaining to the audience who Orson Welles and what Citizen Kane was. He would never do that. But he also doesn't have the same emotional goals that we're going for here. So what is the line of where you're just kind of being expositional in a way that the emotional aspect or the sac the saccharine aspect, as you say, is unearned by the film itself and not related to what the film is about, which is it's tricky. I think it's successful. It's hard. I mean, it's very it's a very subjective thing, though, how to pull that off. Yeah, there was moments where we literally like. Are we going to literally write dialogue at the end of this film explaining, you know, what happened to Jonathan Larson and his impact and his legacy? And when we first screened the film, we were like, oh, I didn't know he wrote, he wrote Rent. I was like, oh, my God, what are we going to do with this? Or how do we do this in a way where we can give a certain audience access to Jonathan's character to be in the same, on the same page without tipping into this place where you've seen it a million times and it has nothing to do with the film you just watched. Well, the trick is having it be emotionally relevant without that context outside of the movie and that it has to still work without explaining that, that it's not dependent on that, which I think it's the film is mostly successful in that because it's about certain universalities about creativity and making a mark in the world and all these other things that I think it rings true. 
you know, there's so much of this film skid where uh, Lynn and Andy had already experimented with just trying footage in different parts of the film. Just again, like how do you intercut therapy or how do you try these different flashbacks or flash forwards? And to do that at the very end of the film without an audience seeing that again, you're just like, well, <laughs> I don't know. Like there's nobody telling me whether I'm right or wrong here to try this thing you just you're just trying it and and hopefully your gut's telling you that it's okay and you know a lot of those experiments were happening in the last uh, month of the edit where we just kept pushing and we'd screen it for people who were like it almost works emotionally and <laughs> like oh my god well what if what's going to be the tipping point would be literally this shot of the two kids sitting on the dock it's also got an interesting emotional shape the whole last third of the movie because at a certain point you've kind of tapped the vein because there's a lot of emotional stuff that happens from the big spoiler to the point that suburbia doesn't take off. From that point forward, there's just kind of one revelation and the, after the other. And I knew right away that that was going to be a problem, that we had like this 15-minute stretch from before we even hit louder than words. It's all just sad. And that we ultimately had to find our way through that with some kind of overlap and condensing, which we did early on. It was like one of the first cuts that we made that Melinda and I both recognized it right away. I mean, I knew what was possible there, but it, you know, when you're assembling a movie, I, I'm a strong believer that I cut nothing out when I do the assembly. I mean, we have to lay all the cards on the table. You have to explore all the intentions. Now I may in, on the side make my own time to cut the alternate that I think is ultimately going to be, but I'm not, when I watch the assembly, I'm not, showing what I think is the indented movie. I'm showing what I think we were trying to do in each specific moment, what we were going for. It's not meant to work as a film when you watch The Assembly. You're meant to see what your options are. And that's why I try to include all the coverage, all the scenes, all the beats, unless it's really explicitly talked about in advance that this will never work. But even if it just puts it in your mental inventory, that's something that has no use at that moment, when you're trying to solve a problem somewhere else, you say, oh, wait, there's that thing we cut out there that we can maybe we could repurpose it for here and it would solve this problem. That always happens. And it only happens if you don't cut off the options at first. So anyway, that's just one thing to be said about that last third of the movie is that finding the emotional dynamics for it is tricky. I liked how there was footage of the actual Jonathan Larson over the start of the closing credits, just as sort of a these emotions that I had about this person I did not know very well, sort of anchoring it with an actual visual rather than uh, simply uh, Andrew's performance. Yeah, I mean, I, maybe we were playing into the traditional biopic, I don't know, but to have this footage that showed him in the diner and showed him playing on the stage and to be able to, I don't know, to show the audience how much Lynn and the production got right as far as, you know, the details, how closely Andrew was able to capture him was nice. But, um, you know, there's, I, I, I do think that the, you know, to be able to play with that footage and create something elegant, not to be too saccharine about it, but just to, um, just to have that texture. And then to show that, oh yeah, there was this beta cam footage and, oh, we had our own beta cam footage, you know, it felt like it was a nice tie-in to everything you had just experienced. Well, there's this record that exists, right? That inspired the film, that inspired Lynn, that inspired everyone. And, you know, now that we've shared this person and this character and his life and what's important in his sphere with you for the past nearly two hours, and you got to know this guy, that um, here's the real one. 
this is the guy that Lynn loves and that we loved making the movie. And that's what it's about. I think it brings that home. Andy, there's a nice little Easter egg in that footage where uh, Jonathan is, I think he's tearing up a piece of paper and it's right over our credit. So I thought that was a really funny little nod to what we do. Yeah. Ripping it up and starting again, throwing it away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gentlemen, so many details and, and effort on the on the editing aspects of this film. With the space between finishing it and then sort of measuring the public reaction, where we are now, what are your thoughts about uh, how the film's doing and how you feel about it now with it behind you? Well, it's really flattering to see how many people have reacted to the film. And, and you know, a lot of people who knew Jonathan Larson's work, knew Tick, Tick, Boom, knew uh, Rent and, and the same reaction to a lot of people who didn't. And that's always, yeah, it's always really flattering when people, you know, recognize the work and are emotionally drawn into it. And, and you know, hopefully it will inspire other Jonathan Larson's out there. You know, that's ultimately, you know, I feel like this is a gift from one artist to another and to some degree a validation of what we all go through as artists. And the fact that people are responding to it is, yeah, it's, it's always really nice. The biggest flattery of the reception is how all the, these people and theater lovers have particularly come out supporting and excited about the film and really clearly reacting to it because, you know, we could have failed with them. <laughs> so I'm glad, I'm glad that they, 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 you know, it's more often than not, you see a theater piece turned into a film and all you hear is theater people complaining about how they, why they open it up or is a crappy adaptation. This has, it's been the opposite, which is great. Now I can't take credit for that as much as Lynn can. I think, you know, we were part of it, but I think that, you know, his synthesis of all the ideas as a representation of his love of theater and why he does what he does is great. I also think that, you know, there's this other theme in the film of mentorship in terms of what Sondheim meant to Larson and also clearly meant to Lynn and what Larson meant to Lynn and what Lynn wants to carry forward. It's beautiful to me that that's part of the impact of this, that people, you know, whether it's the coincidence of what of Sondheim's passing as the film was released, all these people coming out, sharing their stories of his influence on them has been special to see. And has kind of opened my eyes to certain things of his significance that I didn't realize, but that the film resonates with that is special. So gentlemen, where are we next going to see your work? I'm working, I've been working on uh, Darren Aronofsky's next movie, The Whale. And then after that, I'm moving on to Wes Anderson's next project. I will be reteaming with John Chu and working on uh, Wicked, which I'm not entirely sure when we'll see that, but um yeah, hopefully I'll, you'll see it in the next couple of years. Well, gentlemen, really appreciate you coming on the show today, going into the specific details behind all the effort here with Tick, Tick, Boom. A pleasure having you both. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you, good. Thank you. Season nine is going fine, at least for me, but I hope for you as well. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you'll check out some other episodes. It's easy to peruse the entire catalog at the website, below the line one word dot biz, that's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and rate us if you like what you hear. 
If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowthelinebiz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Blow the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at PodBlowTheLine. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Loyal listeners, you are much appreciated. If you're enjoying the season, please tell your friends. We'll be back again next week, and here's a spoiler. We'll be talking about the original Matrix.